Well, please open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table together in a few minutes. I love that song, Gaze on the Christ. I just love it as we come to this table. Well, if you haven't noticed, there's been a debate raging among sports fans for, we can say, decades at this point. Who is the best basketball player that we've seen in our lifetime, my lifetime? Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Have you heard of that one? And it's interesting that why people will vote one way or the other. They do so vehemently with red faces. And, uh, and then it's just a fun debate to have. Now, if everyone was right, they would say Michael Jordan. But, of course, there's people that think it's LeBron. So I'm old enough to say, that, say it that way. I, uh, as a Pistons fan, in the, especially in the 80s and early 90s, I was not a fan of Michael Jordan. So he was in the way or he was a threat to us. As a, Pist- as a Detroit Piston fan. But today, I do miss what we learned from Michael Jordan during his career, and that was how important the basics are, the basics of basketball. As a matter of fact, Michael Jordan is often asked about the basics, what he calls the fundamentals, and how important they are. And this was one of the answers he's given when asked about that. You can practice shooting eight hours a day, but if your technique is wrong, then all you become is very good at shooting the wrong way. And then he said this, get the fundamentals or get the basics down and the level of everything you do will rise, end quote. That's good advice and it's not limited to basketball. If I can summarize his statement, it's this. The basics never get old. They never go out of date, and they're not age-exclusive. The basics prepare you for the profound. In order to prepare our hearts this morning for this table, I want to call your attention for a few minutes to what I'm going to call the basic of the basics when it comes to the Bible. Your Bible is open to John chapter 3. And you can't get any more basic than verse 16. Your Bibles are open, but you probably didn't need to open them, did you? And we probably all, many of us memorized it probably out of the King James. So instead of me reading it to you, will you recite it with me? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. That verse, listen, is the basic of the basics. What is this verse? This John 3.16. This verse is often your first memory verse in this life. This verse has served so many as a lifelong anchor. They memorized it as a child, maybe even before they were of school age. And it's one that they never forget through all of their decades that God gives to them. It's an anchor. This verse, interestingly, shows up at NBA games. 
if you ever watched those, and as a guy's shooting free throws, someone on the other side of the basketball goal in the stands has John 3.16 on a card. Have you seen this guy? The guy must be like 90 years old by now. I've seen him for so long in different sports, and sometimes he has a real colorful wig on. I appreciate his zeal. This verse doesn't just show up at NBA games and professional games. It, if you happen to, excuse me for a moment while I indulge my hobby, if you happen to order a Father's Day gift from Buck's not, Buck Knives, it comes with a little sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, the fourth genera- or four generations of Buck family have made sure that John 3.16 is represented because it's a Christian family by profession. It's interesting, as you think of John 3.16, often it's a quote-unquote safe verse, even with unsaved people. Because they know it too. Who doesn't know John 3.16 here in the West? And even the unsaved will tolerate this verse. Now, in all fairness, it's ambient noise to them, just like Christmas carols that have the Gospel. They'll sing those songs about the Redeemer coming, the Messiah coming, This is Christ the King, and it's just ambient noise. It's not sinking in, and it's for some reason, John 3.16 is tolerated often with the same sentiment, even though they are tone deaf to it. But let me tell you one more thing this verse is. This verse is part of a broader conversation here in John chapter 3, where Jesus is having this talk with a man named Nicodemus. You say, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus, in his time, there in Jerusalem, was the ruler of the Jews. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was extremely religious. You could say he was a religious leader and a titan in that time. But he was a religious leader and and a man of great standout politically and in the world of religion. A great man, a great titan, who was brought to his knees and ultimately, I believe, into heaven because of this verse. That's what this verse is. I'll tell you what this verse is not. This verse, John 3.16, is not merely a bumper sticker. This verse is not an evangelical, quote-unquote, good luck charm to put on jewelry. This verse is not merely a Sunday school memory verse from long ago, and I use it when needed. But let me make sure you understand something extra clear, what this verse is not. This verse is not, listen, merely about man. This verse is not merely a verse about me. It's not merely a verse about you. As a matter of fact, above all, John 3.16 is all about God. This This verse is the apex of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth. This verse is taking us this morning as we prepare for this table back to basics. So go back to basics as you prepare your heart for this communion. This beloved, familiar verse quickly points out to us five realities, five facts 
about God, since the verse is about Him. And what you are reminded of from this verse about God will prepare your heart sufficiently to participate in the bread and the cup. What are the five realities this verse about God teaches us? First of all, it teaches us something about the heart of God. The heart of God. Your Bible's open to John chapter 3. Look at that beloved verse, verse 16. For God so loved the world. What is this teaching us? It's teaching us about God, something about His heart. One of the most helpful evangelical theologians today is the name, has the name Don Carson, D.A. Carson. And one of his statements just grips me. Listen to his, his observation. Because we hear that God so loved the world. It's like, wait, this is the God that's holy. This is the God that John will later record from the book of Revelation is coming with great wrath on a sinful world, a fallen world. This God so loved the world? Is there a tension there? Don Carson writes these words. Both God's love and God's wrath are ratcheted up in the move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. These two themes barrel along through redemptive history unresolved until they come to a resounding climax in the cross. We learn something from this, in this verse about the heart of God. Yes, God is a God of holiness and perfect justice. He's a God of white righteousness, white-hot righteousness emanating from His holiness. He's a God of wrath. He's a God that will indeed visit wickedness and judge it. But this same God, beautifully, mercifully, and graciously, blazes forth with love for those who deserve this wrath. Something about the heart of God. Maybe John will summarize it up with these good words in his epistle in 1 John 4.8. Here it is. God is what? He's love. Without sacrificing His holiness and His justice, He is love. God gets to tell us what real love is. Hollywood doesn't. The capital cities of our states and our country don't get to define what love is. Facebook doesn't get to tell you what love is. You have one direction to look, and it's to God. According to this verse. Charles Spurgeon, as you know, is someone that I, I greatly appreciate his thoughts as a pastor, and so many of the quotes I share with you are quotes that he shared with his, his British congregation so many years ago. Of course, you would expect Charles Spurgeon to get hung up in this concept of God being love and, with his conversation, and he does. And one of his statements in one of his sermons contained this sentence, this, this thought, if a man could know that he was loved by all his fellow men, if he could have it for certain that he was loved by all the angels, yet these were but so many drops, and all put together, 
could not compare with the main ocean contained in the fact that God loves us. End quote. It's gripping. It arrests you, this love. As a current evangelical writer has written, Burke Parsons, in this one sentence, he captures so much. He says, In himself, God is love. Through him, love is manifested. And by him, love is defined. I couldn't agree more. This verse is about God. It tells us something about the heart of God. But let me say something about this love that God has. It's not a passive love. It's not a sentimental quirk. It's not static. God's love is anything but these. It goes into action. Paul puts it in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love by this. So that takes us back to the second thing we learn about God in John 3.16. We've seen the heart of God, but next we see the initiative of God. The initiative of God. Look at the verse. God so loved the world that, and look at the next two words, He gave. He gave. I'm confessing a sin to my daughter and son-in-law right now. I'm not sure they know that the following episode happened with my granddaughter when she was left to our care. But it's none of their business, right? My wife and I were out because of this drought you know, watering things, trying to save something green somewhere. And so Lori bought this year, it's like, a, it's like a bionic hose sprayer on steroids hooked up to a car battery. I can't explain it, but this thing can knock over a wall. And I'm having fun with it. And, and I was out in the backyard. She was using it to gently water her plants. Man, I turn on the jet spray, and I'm hitting our little birch tree we planted, and having a great time just standing there 15, 20 minutes, just soaking the ground out to the edge of the periphery of the leaves, and you know how that goes. And Sela was in our yard. And Sela loves water, usually. And as she was coming around, she wasn't even close to me, but this, this thing will go. This thing will go far. And she's watching me, keeping an eye on me. The dog's running around. Grandma's over there messing in her garden. And, and I just out of the corner of my eye, I just... just darted my hand like that quickly and then back to the tree and and just focused on the tree. Well, about two seconds later, I hear a gasp and a giggle. I'm not even looking, but I'm a good shot. And and, and I look, and she's like, you know, there's wet spots, uh, sprinkles on her, and then she started giggling. It was a surprise that gave way to giggles. Well, I'm not just going to do that one time. You know, she went back to playing with whatever she was pray, playing with, and, and uh, she didn't need a bath that night, in my opinion. I took care of that. I loved it, though. The sequence of the whole deal was, first of all, shock, didn't see that coming, and then joy and a giggling. I love that as a grandpa. And I love that when we consider this verse, too, as we think of the initiative of God. God so loved the world that he gave. Brothers and sisters, do you find it hard to believe that this amazing love of God 
has been directed at you. You are living a death life. Deserving, as we just sung, just wrath. And when you wouldn't come to God, He came to you. And your first response is probably surprise. Why would He come for me? But then that surprise gives way to joy. Because it's up to God to start this whole thing. It's His choice. No one forced God's hand to make you a recipient of His grace. No one forced His hand. It was His choice to direct His love towards you. Again, John will write in 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. We see in this familiar verse the initiative of God. An author I can recommend to you anything he's written. He's in heaven now. He's a biblical counselor. His name is David Pollison. And he never gets over the surprise and then the joy in the fact that God has chosen to direct His love at us so unworthy. David Paulson writes, Paulson writes, God's love is at God's initiative and God's choice. It isn't given out on the basis of my performance. God's Gospel love is not wages that I earn with a model life. It's a gift. It's a gift that I cannot earn, and more than that, it's a gift that I do not even deserve. God loves weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. The gift is the opposite of what I deserve. And then Paulison finishes with this sentence, God ought to kill me on the spot. Instead, He sent His Son to die in my place. So this verse, it tells us, since it's all about God, it tells us something about the heart of God. It tells us something about the initiative of God. But thirdly, it tells us something about the Son of God. It says, for God so loved the world that, look at this, He gave His only begotten Son. You and I are being inundated with emails and banner ads, sometimes text messages, and even television commercials telling us what dad needs next weekend. All these sales are going on, and everyone's clamoring to communicate to you and to me the best gift idea. What does dad need next Sunday? Well, don't wait until next Sunday to find out what, God, what dad needs and what everybody needs. If you can identify what everyone really needs, you will have identified the most amazing gift. You know what every person ever born needs? I'll put it to you this way. Darkness needs light. Error needs truth. Death needs life. And the fall 
the fallen need grace. And you know how this Gospel opens up in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says that Jesus is full, listen, of grace and truth. It also says in chapter 1 that He is the light. He Himself will say in John chapter 14 to His disciples, He'll state a truth that they already believe, but He's asserting there at the end of His earthly ministry, I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. If you want to come to the Father, it's through Me. That's the perfect gift. That's what we all need. Again, John will write in 1 John 4.9, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. My friend Kent Hughes has written this one statement that I just want you to chew on. He writes, the cross, the cross of Christ is the ultimate evidence that there is no link the love of God will refuse to go in affecting your reconciliation. Or as Paul put it, Romans 8, verse 32, He, God, did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So, this is a verse about God. Not us. We see the heart of God, the initiative of God, the Son of God. But I have a question. You see, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that the Father crushes the Son. And then the Father exalts the Son. And then He opens our eyes to see the Son to marvel at the Son, to believe the Son. Why? Because we could not open our eyes on our own. This talks about the fourth thing I learn about God in this verse. I see fourthly, the work of God. The work of God. It says here, whosoever or whoever believes in Him, the Son. Whoever believes in Him, this is the work of God. But don't get to this point in the verse and think that, okay, the first part of the verse is God's part. But He's going to meet me halfway. I have to believe. And the answer to that is, yes, you have to believe. You do. You need to turn from your sin and believe in who Jesus is and what He did. But let me tell you a little secret. Though you have to do that, you can't in your own strength. You don't need just a little bit of help with it. You need grace to do the whole thing for you. This is the work of God. You see, what do you mean by that? I mean this. God doesn't just point at His Son and His work on the cross and His resurrection. He doesn't just point at the Gospel and then just exhale and I hope people come to the party. No. He doesn't just point and exhale. He points and He enables He works in the heart. See, what do you mean? Well, I'm told in John chapter 1 that it's not by blood, it's not by birth, but it's by the will of God, not the will of man. 
when someone believes and receives Jesus. You're told to believe and receive Jesus in verse 13 or in verse 12 of chapter 1, and then there's a comma and it says, and this happens because of God, not by your own will. That's verse 13. Here, as he's talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, remember these verses we seem to come back to a lot lately. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that, what's bor- that what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you've you got to be born again. And it's like this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. God does this. God gives you faith. God grants repentance. As the command of the Gospel says, repent and believe, God enables you to do that. That's His work. Ephesians 2.8 says, you're saved by grace through faith, and that's not by yourself. Philippians 1.29 says, it's been granted unto you not only to believe, but also to suffer. Remember what our Lord's little brother James wrote in James 1.18? It's through Him you are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You've been born again. Collisions are usually bad. I remember the first car accident I was in. I was in the back seat. It was on Dixie Highway. No, it was in Warren, near Macomb Community College, actually. We used their parking lot. My mom was driving, and, and someone hit us. She didn't hit someone. Someone hit us. Well, I mean, I just know this stuff from TV. So I started bursting out in tears. And I'm like, I'm going to jail. I'm going to, the police are going to come. If they come, I'm going to jail. So is mom. But I'm more worried about me. And I might be five years old, but I remember this. And the police did come. And I think I was still, still crying. Why? Because we were in an accident. There was a collision. It was awful. And I don't want to go to jail. I've been in way better accidents since then. And I still haven't gone to jail. I've been hit by a drunk driver on, on 23 since I, came, since I moved here. 70 miles an hour, little Honda, big pickup, and uh, still didn't go to jail. The other guy did on that one. But um, collisions are normally bad, but in this case, what we're learning from John 3.16, collisions are good. Because I was on a, a course for wrath and hell for all eternity. And a loving God collided with me and rescued me. And open my eyes to believe. Look at it this way. If you believe, the wind has blown. It's that simple. The Spirit has worked. If you can see, it's the Father who has opened your eyes. As a matter of fact, in the same chapter, verse 21, Jesus says as He finishes His convo with Nicodemus, He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as heaven and wrought in God. Someone asked him, what are the works that I'm supposed to do? And Jesus will say in John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe. And our Lord will say in John chapter 10, when he's talking about him being the great shepherd and the sheep that he's rescuing, he says, 
my sheep hear my voice and they come. This is the work of God. You say, well, what's the result of his gift, of his work, of him enabling me to see and believe? What's the end result of that? And may I answer that with a simple novel phrase? The result of that is what we'll call eternal multitasking. What do you mean? Well, this brings us to the final fact we learn about God in this familiar verse, John 3.16. Look at the verse. It says, whoever believes in him, watch this, shall not perish, part one, but have eternal life, part two. There's multitasking going on here as we see the mercy of God. The mercy of God. You remember from high school geometry class, think back to ninth, 10th grade, you're having to memorize theorems and postulates and all that stuff, different types of angles. I don't remember anything, except that they were there. But I do remember one thing, a line shows is a linear concept, right? And and if you put a dot on the end of that line, that means the line started there. The line didn't exist before the dot. The dot is starting the line. And, and if there's a, an arrow on it, that means the line continues to infinity unless a dot shows up to cut it off. Okay, it's moving. In that way. So I want you to envision a line with an arrow on each, each end, which means this. We're standing in the middle, quote unquote, or ten, figure that out. We're in the middle of this thing. We look this way. And there's something that continues to go and keeps getting more intense and, and longer and stronger. What is that? I want you to imagine that that means what, the wrath of God you deserve for all eternity. There'll be no end to it at all. But going this way on the line is eternal life with God Himself, ruling and reigning with the Son being indwelt and animated by the very Spirit of God, not just in this life, but He will seal us to the day of redemption. You say, well, what does this deliver? This is God's mercy. It's twofold. God comes for us when we are blazing down this line, blindly towards death, and we can't even begin to imagine the horror. He not only brings us back, but not just to center. He not only saves us so we don't perish, it says in the verse, but man, we go storming towards heaven and eternal life now. That's divine multitasking. He saved us from that, and He propels us in grace towards that. That's mercy. As a matter of fact, here in John 3, verse 36... John writes, he who, or John stated, John the Baptist stated, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The contrast. You say, explain the contrast. One word, mercy. It's the mercy of God. Matthew Henry, the old Bible commentator, said, as God's mercies are new every morning toward His people, so His anger is new every morning against the wicked. This is a serious problem. But God is a God of mercy. So, that's John 3.16. All along, the verse was never about you ultimately, or about me. It's about God. 
And we learn something amazing about the heart of God, the initiative of God, the Son of God, the work of God, and the mercy of God. It's basic stuff. But remember, it's the basics that prepare you for the profound. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to You now as a church family and brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come yet again to this table, we do so regularly as You commanded. We remember through the symbols of the bread and the cup, Your body that was broken for us, Your blood that was shed for us, the blood of the new covenant. So Lord, as we come to this table, help us to remember the basics from a beloved verse, John 3.16. In Jesus' name.